The demographic transition is about the fall in mortality rates as people get better off, get better diets. So first of all, fewer people die and people live longer, particularly infant mortality goes down. And then they get to a level of development where they're more educated, they're more urban and they're wealthier and they're able to and, and desirous of controlling their families. So that's when fertility rates start to drop. And typically they go from six maybe towards two. And demographers used to think that's where they'd settle. Mum and dad, two kids, population more or less stable. What's happening now is we've gone through that demographic transition and we're seeing very different fertility rates in the developed world. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Paul Morland, a demographer and author. Paul says population collapse is the biggest problem facing humanity today. And if developed Western societies want to continue to thrive, people need to have more children. I think what it's really about is what people prioritise in their life, what they want. As our societies have got richer and richer and our resources have grown, we're saying we can't afford to have children, we need more government help to do it. I think it's actually about people's priorities. He says demographics predict the 21st century will see the rise of Africa. Overall, but particularly in Central and West Africa, we're going to be at very, very significant demographic growth in the next 20, 30, 40 years, while the rest of the world goes into a demographic decline. So the future is much more Africa. And I argue that that means that everything's going to be different. It's going to be different from a, a, an economic point of view, from a, a global security point of view, from a cultural point of view. Africa will play a much bigger role. I'm Lee Hall, and this is British Thought Leaders. Paul Morland, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me. So your latest book, Tomorrow's People, is quite an eye-opening and um, fascinating read. Uh, when the media reports on things such as population shift, as a, as a reader, it feels a bit like, wow, how did this happen? But from reading your book, it seems demography can kind of be used to explain how this happened and also predict what's going to happen next. Well, my last book, uh, the previous one to that, The Human Tide, was looking at history and saying, actually, demography has been a big mover in history, particularly in the last 200 years since we went through the, or started to go through, what we call the demographic transition and things started to move very fast demographically. Um, and it sort of occurred to me when I was writing that, that if history has been moved to a large extent by the forces of population, then the world today must still be being moved by those same forces. And the objective of this book was really to say, where are we demographically today? What's growing, what's shrinking, what's aging, what's getting younger, where are people moving to? And what does all of that mean for our present and our future? And I think whilst you can't tell all of the future from understanding demography, you can't get any sort of grasp on it unless you understand the basic dynamics of what's going on from a population perspective in the contemporary world. Back in the 60s, the, the population bomb was published and it, it basically said there's dangerously too many people in the world, there could be famines, etc. I think a lot of people still believe that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I don't want to overplay the errors of Paul Ehrlich. Plenty of people have done that. Um, he was wrong about lots of things, but to his credit, First of all, he was looking at the issue, which so many people don't. And secondly, I think that as a result of his book, a lot of work was done, particularly in the US, in helping countries bring their fertility rates down. 
um, at various points, depending on the president, depending on the political priorities, USAID has focused very much on assisting countries. Now, whilst I believe we've gone too far, and in much of the world, not only Europe, but other countries, other, other continents and other regions, people are having families that are too small. There's no doubt that back in the 60s, families were too large globally, and that in many places it was out of control and it was causing problems. And we have helped people actually in many, many parts of the world. I say we, the West, and the aid, aid donors of aid, and help their governments to help them to determine how big families they want. And whilst I am generally pronatalist, again, something we'll come on to, I don't want people to have children because they're forced to or because they have no option. So I do believe in people having choices. So from that point of view, I, I admire Ehrlich. On the other hand, I think it has to be said that he was alarmist and that he was wrong. And he was wrong in two respects. He's very Malthusian. So Malthus essentially said our population will grow and grow and grow. Two will become four, will become eight, will become 16. But the population can only grow as much as it can be fed. And the power of the world to feed itself will only grow slowly. And so unconstrained would always be banging up against the frontier of what we can achieve as a human race to feed ourselves. And if war doesn't knock us back or, or pestilence, then we'll always be at the edge of misery. And, and Malthus and indeed Ehrlich were wrong in two respects. First of all, they both underestimated our ability and our desire to control our fertility. So two don't become four, become eight, but rather in Korea, 100 grandparents might become, 33 parents might become 11, uh, children, so grandchildren. So that, that dynamic is at work. And also, the other side of the equation, uh, where a thinker like um, Julian Simon was so right, and he had this famous bet with Paul Ehrlich about the prices of commodities, the other thing that's so often underestimated is our ability as a human species to come up with incredibly inventive ideas, so that the world has not only controlled its fertility since the 1960s, to an extraordinary extent, but also it's been able to expand its food production so that now there is plenty of food to feed everyone in the world. That doesn't mean everyone is well-fed, but we're quite capable of producing enough calories for everyone. Now, again, that gives rise to questions about agricultural sustainability, how, and, but these are more problems. So as we solve problems, we are confronted with new problems, but we are incredibly inventive as a human species at finding ways out of these problems. So. Ehrlich was basically wrong, as Malthus was wrong, in two respects. We are better at and more willing to control our fertility than either of those gentlemen expected. And we are better at and more able to expand our productive base, and particularly our food production, than either of them anticipated. In developed societies, people aren't having enough children to replace themselves. There's talk of population collapse. How big of a problem is this? Well, I think it's a very big problem. Now, I would say it's the greatest problem facing humanity, but then I'm a demographer, so um, you know, you'd expect me to say that, I suppose. Clearly, there are other issues that humanity faces. But take Korea, where I just came back from a couple of days ago. The fertility rate there is a little below 0.8 per woman. That means 0.8 per couple. So. Uh, in a society where most children will live to be uh, of an age where they can reproduce themselves, which fortunately is most of the world now, um, the average woman needs to have two children um, to keep the population stable in the long term. In Korea, the average woman is having just a little over a third of that. So as I said, that means 100 people in one cohort 
will produce perhaps 35, 36 in the next cohort. Now think of what that means, and then they will of course produce 12, 15 in the cohort after that. So from the grandparents to the grandchildren, you get a massive, almost sort of 85 to 90% reduction in the population. South Korea is a very developed and advanced country. It's actually quite a densely populated country. But think what it means if you're trying to run a school or run a business or run almost anything. If within one generation, you're gonna lose two thirds of your people. Uh, it's very difficult to plan. And what it causes is economic contraction. So you, that's shown in the GDP data, but GDP is just one way of seeing it. The other thing it means, of course, is massive aging, and it gets harder and harder to find people to do the basic jobs we need. And more and more people concentrate in a small number of cities. Almost half the population of South Korea lives in Seoul. Uh, more and more of the countryside is abandoned. Now, in some ways, that's rather nice if you like to see wolves and bears returning to areas that they once roamed. Uh, human retreat is not altogether a totally bad thing, and we should make more space for nature. But if it goes on and on, it's very hard to see how a society can, can continue to function. We've never had societies like this before, so we're in new territory. The Prime Minister of Japan, which has had a longer problem than South Korea, but not as quite, the fertility rate's not quite as bad, it's been going on for longer, has talked about societal collapse. And when you see a society in which the population is getting very old, the dependency ratios are getting worse, and eventually the population's gonna contract, and it's already contracting in a lot of the world, uh, then we will see, we can imagine what the problems are, we can already see them developing, but new problems will emerge, which will be very difficult for us to solve. The other thing is that it's not only the developed world, so people used to say it was a European issue, but actually it's worse in East Asia uh, than in much of Europe. It's worse in some parts of Europe, Southern Eastern Europe, than in Northern Western Europe. It's worst in East Asia of all the world. And what's so interesting and rather alarming is that low fertility tended to happen when you got to a level of development, when you were fairly rich. I mean, back in Britain, we went sub-replacement in the 1970s, as did a lot of the, the developed world. Now we're seeing countries with really quite low income and quite low levels of development, having very low levels of fertility. Thailand is a case in point, not a rich country by any means, and with a fertility rate below that of the UK. If you look at India as a whole, it's just about reach replacement level now, but it's dropping very quickly. And we can imagine it will drop well below it. And if outside the Hindi belt, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, the sort of north of the, the sort of north poorest part of the country, in parts of the country like Kerala, in West Bengal, in Punjab, more, some of them are more successful, but none of them are what you'd call rich or developed. You're already seeing fertility rates well below replacement, and some of those dynamics will be kicking in that we've talked about that we see in Japan and South Korea. I know this is a big question, but what, what has caused this? The demographic transition is about the fall in mortality rates as people get better off, get better diet. So first of all, fewer people die and people live longer, particularly infant mortality goes down. And then they get to a level of development where they're more educated, they're more urban and they're wealthier and they're able to and, and desirous of controlling their families. So that's when fertility rates start to drop. And Typically, they go from six, maybe, towards two. And demographers used to think that's where they'd settle. Mum and dad, two kids, population more or less stable. On average, that's what would happen. Um, and that was explained, as I say, by urbanization, education, and rising income and economic development. All three of those, of course, are related to each other. 
What's happening now is we've gone through that demographic transition and we're seeing very different fertility rates in the developed world. Israel has a fertility rate of three, really the only developed country with a well above replacement level fertility rate. Um, but within, excluding Israel, which is something of an outlier in the rest of the developed world, we have between 0.8, as I said, in Korea, so a couple having fewer than one child, to some of the better performers in the developed world, France, Scandinavia, ourselves, for a long time, knocking around at between, say, 1.8 and 2. And what's happening now is that almost everywhere that's falling quite significantly. And I think this is all to do with culture, it's to do with values, uh, it's to do with priorities. It's not any longer to do with that economic progress out of a early pre-modern phase to a modern phase. That's happened. And now that we are all more or less in the developed world able to feed ourselves, able to keep our children overwhelmingly alive until they reach maturity, we're overwhelmingly wealthy as societies and we're overwhelmingly predominantly urban. Now what's differentiating us is religion, values, priorities. Right. You mentioned Israel as an outlier. Are there any demographic groups within these societies where the rates are down that are booking the trend? So in Israel, the data is very good and it's been analysed by religious affiliation. And what you see is a spectrum of religiosity between what you could call the secular population and the ultra-Orthodox population and groups in between. Uh, the Israeli data divides the society, the Jewish society, we'll perhaps talk about the Arab society separately, but the Jewish society into five or six groups determining, determined by how they describe their religious observance. And the more religious they are, the more children they have. So the, the ultra-Orthodox have six children on average, and the seculars have two. But what's interesting is, first of all, the ultra-Orthodox are still only 12-13% of the population, too small really to move the dial that much. And secondly, even seculars are having a couple of kids, and quite common for secular people to have three children. So although it is on a spectrum of religiosity, nevertheless, the whole society has a higher fertility rate than you would expect. And I think that's got a lot to do with uh, the culture in the country, a pronatal culture, and a lot of that has to do with a sense of the country having its back to the wall and being surrounded by adversaries who'd like to destroy it. So I think that's in there somewhere, although very difficult to quantify. The other part is the one-fifth of Israeli society that's Arab, it did, or Palestinian, it did have a very high fertility rate, nine children per woman back in the 60s. But that's gone through its demographic transition, and now the overall Arab sector, largely Muslim, partly Christian, partly Druze, has a fertility rate that averages the Israeli average. So somewhere between the six of the ultra-Orthodox and the two of the larger secular element at about three. So the Israeli Arab sector is now pretty average. So what's happened to the Israeli Arabs has been a more traditional demographic transition as they've got more educated and wealthier and more urban, their fertility rates come down. It's the Jewish society, the 80% that is not Arab, that is uh, of interest and where fertility rates seem to be very much driven by values, priorities and above all religion. Who is seeing that, that value-driven fertility rate in, say, England or America? It's very interesting. The data's not great in much of the world. So in the UK, there are no significantly large groups of high fertility religious sects, as far as I know. I mean, there are such people. 
I've been in touch recently with some traditional Catholics who have very, very large families. But they're still a fairly small element. They're not highly defined and highly distinct. It's not clear that they're able, as the ultra-Orthodox Jews are, to maintain within the fold the vast majority of their children. So you might have families with large numbers of children, but unless they have large numbers of children and they have large numbers of children, it will always be a small element within society and it won't be statistically significant. Where there is data and where there is interest is in the United States. There are uh, the, the Mormons traditionally had a high fertility rate, although that seems to be collapsing and a fairly high retention. Uh, but there are the Amish, there are the Hutterites, um, both groups of tens of thousands who live in fairly concentrated settlements who have a fairly low attrition rate, so they manage to retain most of their children within the, the faith, and who have between four and six children each, so significantly higher than the society as a whole, and large enough to create very dramatic growth. Now, they're very small groups. They're still only tens of thousands in a society of hundreds of millions. But if you roll things forward, and if they manage to continue to have very high fertility rates and to keep within the fold the vast majority of their children, then they will become much more significant. The only other group that I've seen some data on is fundamental Lutherans in um, Finland. So in Europe, outside Israel and outside the United States in the developed world, there's very little data on those sorts of groups. And I think that's because those kind of small, high fertility, low attrition groups really don't exist in any significant number outside um, those two countries. What can be done about this problem? Well, I think the traditional thing that people do in Britain and so many other countries is to say, we have a problem, let's call in the government. And people assume that there are political and policy solutions. And certainly there are things that governments could do. Um, we look around the world and we see there are countries where governments are trying very hard. It's not particularly good for the reputation of pronatalism that the most prominent examples are Hungary and Russia, but there you go. Um, they try all sorts of things. So money is the big motivator. I think um, the Hungarians are giving grants, they're giving tax breaks, the Russians have done similar things. Exactly how they're structured varies over time. Um, the effect is limited, so the data is not all that clear. In Hungary and Russia, the fertility rate went up. But I think that had a lot to do, certainly in Hungary's case, with changes in when people were having children. So the fertility rate, which is a technicality, I won't bore you with how it's calculated, but essentially if a cohort of women delay their childbearing and have a similar number of children but later, while they're delaying, the fertility rate goes down. And once they stop delaying, it goes up. But if you look at how many children they've had at the end of that, it may not have changed all that much. I think that kind of dynamic's going on in Hungary. I mean well done for the governments for having a go and realizing the problem but it's hard to see in an unequivocal way that throwing an awful lot of money at it as the Hungarians are doing is making more than a fairly modest impact. In Georgia in the Caucasus the church has got involved and the leader of the church has offered to baptize I think third children and, and, and beyond. That seems to have had an uptick. And I think that actually speaks to something important, which is we can't just expect the government to solve the problem. The government can throw money at it. That seems to be not all that effective. 
the government can, however, also work with cultural icons to shift things along. I mean, I was in South Korea and people were talking about David Beckham and Prince William. Interesting cases of men who I think are icons for some people and who I think respectively have had three or four children. And those kind of um, examples do make a difference, I think, on the margin. Of course, a lot of people talk about the cost of bringing up children, the housing problems, and the childcare problems. There are a few things to say about that. First of all, I think it would be great if we could help young families get started on the housing ladder and help women who need to combine work and childcare and men who need to combine work and childcare. Uh, I think we, we need a more equal relationship between men and women in these things and we need a bit of help from government. But I think we have to be realistic as to how much that will really change things. Where we see cheap childcare like Germany, or cheap housing as in parts of Scotland, for example, we still see very low fertility rates. I think what it's really about is what people prioritise in their life, what they want. As our societies have got richer and richer and our resources have grown, we're saying we can't afford to have children, we need more government help to do it. I think it's actually about people's priorities. So again, getting back to South Korea, people were saying to me, you know, we can't afford, it's impossible in Seoul to have a... And my response was, you want to be in Seoul. That's really important to you in terms of your career, in terms of your life, expectations. But presumably there is an alternative life you could lead if children are a really great priority somewhere else in the country. You might not have quite as exciting a life. You might not be able to network as well. You might have a different sort of career, maybe a slightly less challenging one. And I'm not saying that's what you should do. But I am saying that if having a family is your highest priority, you'll order your life in a different kind of way. And I think that's the same in the UK. I think it's the same everywhere. The very low fertility rate reflects people's priorities. And government throwing money at it is probably not really going to change those priorities all that much. We've talked quite a lot about births, but also deaths have quite an influence on all of this. Could you speak to us a bit about that? Well, the reason that deaths aren't featuring that much in the debate is because we've kind of got there, effectively. Now, what does getting there mean? If you go back to the late 18th century in Britain and almost anywhere else in the world at that stage, you were losing a quarter to a third of your children in the first year, and perhaps two-thirds weren't getting to the point where they could uh, reproduce. So we had this incredibly high death rate of youngsters, uh, which obviously is unthinkably tragic and then many people then dying in the 30s and 40s. So people didn't live very long. And that has shifted almost everywhere. I think the worst infant mortality rate now, that's deaths in the first year, is, is Sierra Leone, is probably down below about 10%, from a third to about 10%, and it's got a lot further to fall. Countries like Peru have made extraordinary progress and are now still quite poor at where Britain was back in the 90s. So we've kind of got to the point where infant mortality in most of the world is very low. Every child lost is a tragedy and needs to be fought and fought for. But at the same time, when you get infant mortality rates so low, it doesn't make much of a demographic difference. And you're getting countries like India, where people are living on average to the age of 70. So again, great if that moves up from 70 to 80, but the death story, we've kind of achieved that as a human race. Relatively few people in the world are living short lives, that, and, that, and, and, and that's being pushed back, that's mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, and that is changing very rapidly. So the death story is kind of done. I mean, 
in terms of making an impact on demography, um, in terms of personal stories and personal lives, of course, it would be great if we could get our infant mortality down, say, to Japanese levels, which is half of where it would, where, it, where ours is, but it wouldn't make much difference demographically. What is also happening that's interesting in some developed countries, including Britain and the United States, is that the rise of life expectancy is starting to falter and calculated in certain ways is actually retreating a little bit. We see all sorts of reasons for that, deaths of despair, uh, a lot of drugs in the United States, um, parts of the UK such as Scotland, which has the lowest life expectancy. Again, that's a real social challenge and needs to be resisted. But again, if instead of retreating, we got our life expectancy up to Japanese levels, sort of say instead of 79 or 80, we got it up to 84, 85, it wouldn't make all that much difference demographically. Where it does make a difference is that if you have a very low birth rate, if very few people are being born, if few people are coming into the workforce because they were born 20 years ago, and then you have most people living to a reasonably ripe old age, then you have a great imbalance between, or a growing imbalance between those who are of retirement age and those who are of working age. And that's what creates great pressure on public finance, on health services. It's no coincidence that Japan, which has got the longest life expectancy and has long had one of the lowest fertility rates, has also got the highest debt to GDP ratio in the developed world because the Japanese government is spending money constantly and has fewer and fewer taxpayers, and that's only going to get worse. We spend a lot of money on the health care of the elderly. Mm. Now, you can do things about that, like change the retirement date, but two things I'd say on that is, first of all, you move the retirement date a bit. That just helps you a bit, but it doesn't re reverse the ongoing process of declining, worsening um, rates of dependency. So that's sort of one thing. The other thing is that just moving the retirement date by a few years so it turns out to be really difficult politically. I mean, two, two po politicians who've become unstuck on this, of all people, Putin, who's not a, a shrinking violet, as we know, uh, but that he were, um, had to retreat on trying to reform the retirement date in Russia. And Macron has used a huge amount of political capital in France holding on to moving it just a few years. So we could move it, but it's really hard to do and it's not going to have all that much effect. Uh, immigration is obviously a hot topic these days. Um, Britain's been open to a lot of immigration for quite a while. What impact has this had from a demography standpoint? Well, I make the argument that countries are faced with the what I call the trilemma. So the trilemma is you can have two out of three things, but not all three. You can have a growing economy, which requires some sort of growing workforce. You can have a low fertility rate, and you can have ethnic homogeneity and continuity, but you can't have all three of those. So Japan has said, we don't want to have large families, we don't want immigration, and as a result, their economy has gone from being one of the world leaders. I mean, it's still a wealthy and successful country, but it's no longer the prominent economy, the rising sun that it was in the 70s and 80s. You can go the British route of saying, we don't want very large families. We're not really re prepared to replace ourselves, but we do want labor and we want economic growth. And that requires very fast immigration and very rapid ethnic changes we've seen in, in the UK. Or you can go the Israeli route of saying, we will have large families, and we will therefore be able to manage our economic growth and retain a more or less stable 
uh, ethnic situation. Yeah. So my point in saying this is if in Britain people don't want immigration and want to bring it down, I think they have to understand the consequences. And the consequences are we are already short of labour in almost every sector, despite the fact we have pretty sluggish growth and we have a million people coming in gross a year. So I think it's about the choices we want to make as a country. And if we are going to say we want slower growth in the immigrant population and a more stable uh, ethnic um, situation in the country and, and the uh, population which defines itself as white British remaining as a majority, then we have to change, either have to change our um, fertility practices and patterns, or we have to accept that the economy will shrink and we will be short of labour. And I've always said this to those who are very opposed to immigration, I say, well, fine. But how long will anti-immigrant sentiment in the country remain when people find there's no bus, there's no one to make an appointment with at the health service, no one to drive the, the tankers to the to the petrol station, there's no petrol. I mean, society, the Prime Minister of Japan is talking about societal collapse. So all very nice talking about AI, and we can talk about that. But as, as I see things standing at the moment, we need labor in most sectors of the economy. And if we're not prepared to produce that labor ourselves, then we need to import it. Now, the other question, of course, is where do we import it from? And traditional sources of immigration in the UK, such as Poland and India, now have below replacement or replacement fertility levels. India is very poor, so there's still a lot of, it's doing very well economically, but still there's a big gap. So I, I, I think there'll still be a lot of Indian people who'd want to come to the UK if allowed to. Mexico, more Mexicans are leaving the US than come in, have been for a long time. Mexico has a fertility rate not much higher than the US, whereas it used to be twice or three times as high. So I don't think we can rely forever on others to do the childbearing, child rearing and educating to fill our needs. So I think it's unrealistic to think it will be there. And of course, if we do want to plug the gap with immigrants, what we'll find is we have to go to countries which still have high fertility rates, and that will be fewer and fewer countries, and generally poorer and poorer countries with less and less educated people. So I think immigration is not a, an easy fix. It raises all sorts of challenges of integration, and the other thing, of course, is that immigrants, when they come to this country, tend to conform to our own fertility rates. So it can only fix the problem for a period. Yeah. And immigrants will grow old. And it's really a Ponzi scheme to think that we can bring in larger and larger numbers of people forever to meet our labour requirements. Based on what you know now, where do you see things going for Britain, say, in the next 50 years? Well, my guess is that, despite my best efforts, um, one man uh, campaign. I don't think we're going to shift our fertility rate significantly. In fact, on the contrary, when I look at the values of Generation Z um, and the priorities they have and their outlook on the world, I don't associate that with higher fertility. I associate it with lower fertility. So I think, and that's across all our communities. It's not just white British people. It's Hindus. It's Sikhs. It's Afro-Caribbeans. Very few of our communities have got higher fertility rates. So I would like to think that our fertility rate can pick up, and then in 20 and 30 years' time, we can have British-born people of all backgrounds and all races and all ethnicities filling our needs for uh, the, the economy and the workplace. I suspect that that won't happen. And if it doesn't happen, 
then we will either need to accept the dislocation of a lack of labour or ever-growing numbers of immigrants from where we can get them. And we just assumed we could hoover them in according to our requirements. That will get harder and harder. So I think the, the pressure is going to start biting somewhere. The, the reason I talk about this trilemma is I think if people understood it, governments understood it, and voters understood it, we could probably have a more informed debate. When people just say, well, let's bring down the immigration rate, I think they have to understand what are those pressures that are causing us to have so many immigrants. And when the government wants to bring in restrictions, they must be listening to the voices of uh, industry saying, well, we can't possibly do that. We won't be able to keep our restaurants open. We won't be able to keep the health service going. We won't be able to keep the transport rolling. So there's huge pressure from industry to keep the doors open. And what I see is not really a change in our willingness to produce our own labour force for the future, but at the same time a resistance, a reluctance to have endless flows of immigration and ethnic change. And somewhere, something is going to give. You compared Britain and Japan. I got the feeling from reading your book that Japan is kind of a, a demographer's dream, really. Can you talk to us a bit about what's happening there? Well, I'd say it's a demographer's nightmare, at least a demographer of my um, uh, beliefs. A demographer's nightmare because it's not the fertility rate is not as low as in a career, but it's low and it's been low for a long time. It only got low in Korea in the 80s. It's been low in Japan since the late 60s. So they've built up this problem. And on the other hand, they're very good at keeping their older people alive. They have the, pretty much the longest life expectancy in the world. So a very large number of um, centenarians, I mean, tens of thousands of people over 100, and that's growing very, very fast from a base of almost nothing. Um, fewer and fewer people coming into the workforce. The talk of societal collapse from the Prime Minister. Now, the one thing we haven't talked about yet is technology. And one pushback I get when I talk about the need to have more children is, oh, won't AI fix it all? Or if it was 10 years ago, won't the robots fix it all? Mm -hmm. And I think there is a view that people will be able to do without labour because we'll have technology. Now, if anywhere is going to be the laboratory for that, it's Japan. They're very innovative in ways of substitute, substituting labour. Uh, they have a lot of technology. A couple of things I'd say on that. The first thing is it's still pretty experimental and it's very capital intense. So in order to pay for it, you need to invest an awful lot. And I think that will continue to be the case, whether it's robots or AI. So I think we, if we believe we can substitute labour with capital we need or technology, we're going to have to invest a lot in that. And of course that has economic effects. Where's that money going to come from? Are you going to borrow it from abroad thinking we can endlessly suck in capital as we can suck in labour? Or are we going to have to pay for it ourselves, which means actually sacrificing consumption today? So I think that's one issue. I think the other issue on technology is as an economic point, which is economic productivity is not great. We haven't seen much productivity growth in the UK. We're particularly poor. But most of the developed world has got pretty low productivity growth. Now, if we were on the edge of a period when this incredible new technology is going to do the work of lots and lots of people, we'd start seeing it. We'd start seeing either a reduction in employment with the same economy and therefore more economic output per hour work. Or we'd be seeing very fast economic growth with the same number of people, but applying this technology, we're not seeing that. So when people say, oh, technology is going to fix the problem, I would say, first of all, it's going to be expensive to implement. And secondly, I'm not seeing it yet. Um, if, we're on the, if we're on the cusp of a revolution, surely we should start seeing it. 
in the productivity data. We're not. So Japan is a very interesting laboratory for demography, but um, not one that I would be particularly keen on following. You have a chapter in your book on population growth and you focus on Africa. Can you talk to us a bit about how you see the future developing for this continent? Well, I talked about the demographic transition. So first of all, your mortality rate drops, but your fertility rate stays high and your population grows. And then eventually your fertility rate comes down. And that Africa's the last area of the world to get there, effectively. A few countries outside Africa, particularly poor ones, are also still experiencing high fertility rate, but fewer and fewer. Um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, and Timor-Leste come to mind, but really, even there, it's dropping very fast. So within Africa, North, the North African littoral, the Mediterranean littoral, the Arab countries have all got two to three children. So they, they've kind of, they've still got some population growth, but they're not going to be expanding very rapidly. Southern Africa, particularly South Africa, but also its neighbours, have also managed to get their fertility rate under control. Some of the big players in East Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, are rapidly getting their fertility rates down. Now, they're still quite high, and there's something called demographic momentum, which means they've still got big cohorts of young women, few old people because the population's growing, which means they've still got lots of population growth in the works. But the, the countries of Central and West Africa are where the fertility rate is still very, very high. At the same time, they're getting their infant mortality down, their life expectancy up. So that's where we're going to get huge growth. So overall, but particularly in Central and West Africa, we're going to get very, very significant demographic growth in the next 20, 30, 40 years, while the rest of the world goes into a demographic decline. So the future is much more African. Mm. And I argue that that means that Everything's going to be different. It's going to be different from a, a, an economic point of view, from a, a global security point of view, from a cultural point of view. Africa will play a much bigger role. But exactly how and which countries are going to be the stars, which countries are going to manage to turn this opportunity into economic growth and development, and which are going to be basket cases, that's much more difficult to say. Do you have any figures for you expect the population of Africa to grow to? Well, the figures I've seen are that roughly the population of sub-Saharan Africa will have grown from about 7% of the world to about 35% of the world between about 1950 and 2100. So we're pretty close to halfway through that journey and we're pretty much on track. There's a bit of a debate among demographers about how quickly fertility rates are falling. And some people think that it's going to fall much more quickly than we'd expected and that Africa's never quite going to get there. But whether, even if it got to 25% of the world population, it will be a very different world. Education also plays quite a big role in all of this. Obviously, a society uh, improves its education, people get more brainy, but there's various effects on the society itself. Could you talk to us a bit about that? So the way I would... Um, frame it is what's the effect of education on demography and what's the effect of demography on on education I mean we talk about uh, we talked a lot about quantity but there's also a qualitative element so um, if people are going from majority illiterate to majority university educated over a few generations as in countries like uh, China say or getting on for the majority uh, certainly a third or, or, or a bit more, 40% uh, going to university. Um, then, obviously, in terms of productivity, 
it's a very different society. And as a society shifts from a largely illiterate to a highly educated population, it can do an awful lot more with fewer people. So that is one thing that actually uh, will allow us better to cope with population decline. Having said that, much of the world is already very educated. I'm not sure that countries like the UK or the US or South Korea are going to get an awful lot more out of that um, when they're sending half their populations or more to university where everyone effectively has been literate for generations. So, but, but for some countries like India, where the fertility rate is now falling and the population largest in the world now will level off sooner or later, the fact that they've still got so much that they can get out of their population by educating them better uh, is something that needs to be borne in mind. The other way around, in terms of, of what does all of that mean for demography, um, as we know, more educated people, particularly more educated women, have smaller families. So as more and more of the world moves into this high income, high urban, um, most people living in cities, and highly educated world, then the natural tendency is for the fertility rate to fall. So now the challenge is, yes, we want all our young people to get good education, to fulfill their potential, and we want women as much as men to be there. How do you reconcile that with keeping the human race going? If it means that without some counter effect, the average well-educated woman is only gonna want one to two children rather than two to three. Reading your book um, throughout, there are, there are moments where I'm quite amazed by what I'm learning. Uh, demography obviously kind of unlocks an understanding of the world and also where the world's going to go. But you must have quite a different understanding of the world from most people that you talk to. Well, most people who I talk to are, are people who know me and who've heard me bang on about demography for quite a long time. So uh, my immediate circle, my family and immediate friends, I suppose, um, are more familiar with this stuff than the population as a whole. My mission is that more people should see the world through this prism. It's not the only prism to see the world through. But I do think that if you can't grasp the basics of What's the size of the population? How many people are there? What sort of age are they? How is that changing? Where is it changing? What's the difference between Europe and Asia? What's the difference between East Asia and South Asia, between Western Europe and Southern Europe? If you don't understand these basic things of birth, the most fundamental human events, which are births and deaths, um, then you can't really understand the world around you. So my hope is, by having written the book, having the opportunity to speak to you and others who are kind enough to give me a platform, I can spread the world and people will start seeing the world through these demographic lenses, a, a better educated world, a world that understands population and its movements itself, is, is a world that understands itself better and is then in a better position to understand what's happening and to make wise choices about the kind of future it wishes to build for itself. Paul Marlon, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.